Welcome to Spread the Word, a podcast brought to you by Bayes. Our mission is to interview and share perspectives on gender to our community. You're here with Audrey, Sydney, Ahana, Isha, Liz, Serena, and Erin. Today we're discussing domestic violence with Ms. Hoover. Hi everyone, I'm Ahana. I'm Erin. And we're the Bayes that interviewed Ms. Hoover for this episode. We wanted to say a few quick things before you get to hear the interview. The first is a content warning. We will be talking about domestic violence and abuse in this interview, so if that makes you uncomfortable, please proceed with caution or just don't listen. <laughs> also, there is a baby in the background for some parts, so you may hear him crying a little bit. Ms. Hoover is a LCPC and a CDVP, and she's a Family and Service Manager at Mutual Ground. What we talked about in our interview is her basic beliefs on gender equality, gender roles, and her experiences on gender. Then we asked her about her specific work that she does with her clients at Mutual Ground, which is a domestic and sexual violence shelter in Aurora. And then lastly, we talked to her about how her work impacts her views on gender. Finally, we want to give a big thank you to Spectrum who helped us review the segment on gender at the beginning. And also we want to thank Ms. Hoover for talking to us and giving us such awesome answers that we hope you all can learn from as you listen to the podcast. Enjoy the podcast. <laughs> My name is Samantha. My pronouns are also she, her. What are your beliefs on gender in general? Thoughts on gender? I mean, I have a lot of thoughts, <laughs> I guess. I think that we're kind of in a cool time in history. I think we'll look back and say it was sort of like a gender revolution. Not only that we're redefining what we think of as traditional male and female gender roles, but also just the expansion of how we identify and the various ways that people are able to now identify themselves that feels more congruent to who they see themselves on the inside. I think also my views on gender are very much impacted by the work we do in domestic and sexual violence um, since the work of the battered women's movement really started from feminism and from the women's movement. And it's been just really cool to see how we're now like expanding the work we do. And I mean, we have for several years now, but I would say like, you know, more in the last decade than, than in previous decades, talking about how issues of domestic and sexual violence impact all genders. Now we see that, um, you know, people who identify as trans or gender nonconforming are victimized at higher rates than almost any other group when it comes to domestic and sexual violence. I think it's important that, that those issues are gaining visibility so that people can gain um, access to the, to the help and the services that they need. Thank you so much for sharing that. Our next question is more on gender equality. Do you think like it's important and that the U.S. has achieved it? Um, if it hasn't, what do you think needs to change? I think until we've really achieved gender equality, we're not going to be able to see the elimination of the issues of domestic and sexual violence. And I think when we look at our culture as a whole, we see that sexism and misogyny and rape culture still really are pervasive. But then even if we look just like at scientific fact and statistics, we see that women in the same job role 
make approximately like 83 cents to the male in the same role. And for women of color, we see that the statistics are even worse. We can see from that that, that equality hasn't been achieved and we have a long way to go. And then when we think about trans and gender nonconforming folks, we see that those statistics in large part don't even exist. So it's hard to even gauge really where we stand with equality. Um, but we do know that folks do ex still experience transphobia and so forth in the workplace and that pay is not equal there either. I think we've come a long way since 1968 when we first started passing legislation that prohibited battering of women and when we first started passing legislation against marital rape, for example. But we're not at a place where we're all equal. And I think people make the mistake of thinking, well, you know, everyone has the right to vote or we passed gay marriage. We, we you know, had the women's march. So let's wash our hands of it and say, good job, we're done. But I think it's you know, it's a dangerous place to get complacent when there's still so much left to do. That's some of my views on equality. I think that was really powerful. I also think it's a reminder that we can't be complacent just because it's in the law doesn't mean it's actually reality. So thank you for that. How has family and home life growing up influenced your view on gender roles? Yeah, so I think my my upbringing was really contradictory in a lot of ways. So my mom will tell you that she identified herself as a feminist from the time that she was in high school, like you guys, and um, that she really believed in women's rights and, and did some work on that, like on her college campus and so forth. And that would have been back like in the late 60s, early 70s. At the same time, um, I grew up in a very religious household. And so sometimes the religion that we practiced would kind of be in conflict with what my mom was teaching us. So for example, um, I said in the beginning that my name is Samantha, but my whole life I've always gone by Sam or Sammy. And my sister's name is Miranda and her li whole life she, growing up, she went by Randy. And my mom always said that she intentionally gave us names that were gender neutral because she recognized that as we grew up and applied for jobs and the name that you put on your resume sometimes can, you know, people might screen you out based on your gender before or by or based on your ethnicity before you even get the job interview. I don't think at that time she really had this idea that folks are sometimes transgendered. I don't know that she really had that knowledge back then. I remember when I was like five, I think, we ended up leaving a church that we were attending because they wanted to make a strict policy that women couldn't be in leadership at the church. My mom was really opposed to that idea, and my dad has always been really supportive of my mom. We ended up leaving that church and going to another church, and my mom has now been what they call um, a shepherd, but at some churches it's called like a deacon or an elder depending kind of what religion you're in. But my mom has been a shepherd in that church now for probably 26 or 27 years. I think it's interesting because in some ways I grew up very sheltered from pop culture and those kinds of things. We, we weren't allowed to listen to what my parents called secular music and we weren't allowed to watch movies that weren't rated G. But even 
within the religious community, I feel like my family was sort of unique because many other people who grew up in a very sheltered religious household also grew up with very strict defined gender roles. And I grew up with my parents kind of always breaking those molds. My mom was a leader in the church, but also she was an avid sports watcher and she was like very vocal and outgoing and she managed our, our finances and our bills in our household. And my dad loves gardening and he, he just made a cross stitch for my son's nursery and he was always into things that maybe other folks would identify as more feminine. We knew that at the time that they were kind of breaking the, the, the rules of other folks and that they were a little bit different but I grew up kind of learning that that was okay. That's actually really cool. I think it's interesting that your family was very religious, but also special in how you guys were raised and stuff. Even though your parents were very like supportive and you said that like your mom really encouraged you to think that women can do anything, did that ever cause conflict between your other family or even people in your community? Definitely, I have many folks in my family that don't see eye to eye with the way that our parents raised us. Some of my cousins were raised a little bit differently with more traditional gender roles. And, you know, I have like an uncle, for example, who, who said he could never go to a church that had a female pastor. But then I have another uncle who, for most of my cousin's upbringing, they went to a church with a lesbian female pastor that headed the church. So it's kind of across the spectrum in terms of within my family. On my dad's side of the family, in some ways they were more conservative, but also my dad has a, or had a brother, he passed now, but um, had a brother who identified as gay. So it was kind of interesting as a kid to sort of see him come out to my grandparents and then them kind of figuring out how to reconcile his beliefs or not, I'm sorry, reconcile their beliefs with the fact that their son was gay and, and what did that mean for what they had always thought or believed. Maybe what, what is more in conflict or that I saw maybe more often than the issue of gender and sexism is the issue of race and racism. There has always been large parts of my family that have said racist things, acted in racist ways, and, you know, made microaggressions against the folks around us. And so I think I saw that difference between sort of how my parents lived and how other parts of our family lived more with with racial inequality than, than maybe with gender inequality. But I will say like one of the one of the things I in terms of you asking about the religious community, my my mom always worked out outside of the home. She was a teacher in a public school and all of us kids went to public school. And that was a huge difference between us and most of the other kids in our religious community. Um, the majority of them had mothers who stayed home and homeschooled them and they didn't go to public school. Have your views changed throughout your life with different triggers, such as going to public school, social media, marriage, having kids, et cetera? Yes, I think I would love to be able to say I was like an enlightened human, um, right? That I was woke from from childhood, but I don't don't really think that that's true. I think um, that I've definitely evolved over time. And I think a big part of it is the education that I've received 
And I think that I, I always tell my clients and the people that I work with, like you can never unknow something. Like even if at the time you learn it, you don't apply it or you don't want to believe it, it's still there in your mind and it still changes the way that you think about things, whether you want it to or not. And so I think, you know, in college, as I learned more about gender studies and women's studies, that sort of expands your mind. And then in my master's program, uh, my emphasis is on multicultural psychology and specifically on Latino mental health. And so in, in doing a lot of diversity classes and learning like how to work with different folks, um, I think that that also really started to open my mind as well. And then, you know, in my work as a therapist, as you work with clients who, who are trans or who are gender nonconforming, um, it also, I mean, everybody's experience is so different. So you just learn something new from everyone that you encounter. I would also say that's very true of coworkers that I've had um, who identify as other genders. Just learning from them, not, not necessarily what it is to be transgender, or what it is to be gender nonconforming, but how, the, how those genders then impact the way they're treated in a workplace or the way that they were treated in school or, you know, the different experiences that they've had and, and you start to really open your mind to like all the ways that it is important and all the ways that it does impact someone. I would like to say that I'm, that I'm still learning and will keep learning hopefully my whole life. I, I don't want to ever be that person that thinks like, oh, I've got it. Like I said, complacency, I think is our biggest enemy. So once we start thinking, oh, we're crushing it, we know everything, then we just kind of stay stagnant but the world keeps moving. And I think also this job that I have now at Mutual Ground has, has been also helpful in that because there is such an emphasis on, you know, doing liberation work with our clients and coming from like a feminist viewpoint and really talking about how to empower clients and how to serve folks of different genders. And, and so, you know, in doing that, we not only have trainings for our staff that have been helpful to me, but also, because I go out into the community and do trainings, I've had to continue educating myself so that I can speak in an educated way about these issues. And definitely over the last several years, you know, Mutual Ground has really tried to make the push to, to making sure people are aware and know that our services are available to people of all genders and that we are, you know, welcoming and affirming organization. And so being a part of creating some of that I don't want to say marketing because it sounds kind of like we're selling something, which we're not, <laughs> but, but the, the campaign, that awareness campaign and, and getting the information out there has also, you know, pushed me to be able to put things down on paper, or write things a certain way in order for us to attract the right folks or to let the right folks know that, that they can come to us and, and be safe. That was very cool to hear you talk about how you're always growing because I think it's really important for everyone. You've mentioned in your work that you've helped people who are like trans and gender non-conforming. Do you have any specific intersections within your identity that affect your beliefs on gender? So it's tough because um, I identify myself as a white, straight, cisgendered female. And so, the vast majority of those identities, and also um, Christian, right? So the vast majority of the identities that I have are really 
identities that lend themselves to privilege. I, I recognize that being a white person, being a cisgendered person, being a straight person, all of these things, you know, are privileges that I have and that impacts the work that I do. I also identify as female and we know that, like I said, our movement came out of the battered women's movement and that women are more likely to be victimized for domestic violence and, and for sexual assault than men. Um, when you just look at the, at the dyad, and like I said, a lot of my identity grew out of this idea of my mom being a feminist and, and really working towards, you know, women's rights. And so I do see the identity as being a woman or being a female as, as a minoritized identity, but the rest of my identities hold a lot of privilege. In terms of intersectionality, I don't have an intersection of two minoritized identities, but I do have to hold this sort of uh, dynamic of having privilege in a lot of ways, and then also not having privilege in terms of, you know, the male-female dyad. In the work I do, I think that's really important because when we're working with a client, especially a client who's a part of multiple minoritized populations, we do have to make sure that we recognize the privilege we're bringing into the relationship and also that we really name it and talk about it with the client, right? So um, if I have a client coming in who is a different gender than me, or if I have a client coming in who's a different race than me, it's important for me to be able to name in that relationship and say, like, what is it like for you to be working with a cisgendered therapist? What is it like for you to be working with a white therapist, right? And, and how can we get to a place where you can trust me, even though, you know, white folks in general, maybe, maybe aren't trustworthy based on your life experiences, or maybe how do you trust me to, to be someone safe to talk about, you know, all the oppression that you've experienced as somebody of, of, you know, a transgender or gender non-conforming identity, even though I don't share that identity with you, right? So just as a therapist, I feel like it's my responsibility to be the one to label those differences and bring them into the room and give that person permission to talk about it. Because I think a lot of times when, when you're the person coming from the minoritized population, right, it's hard to go up to somebody with privilege and say, can we talk about the fact that you have more privilege than me, right? And so I don't want to put that burden on the other person. I want to be the one to, to label it and bring it up and, and put it out there in the space and let them know that I'm comfortable talking about it and I, and I want it to be a safe space where they can talk about it too. I think it's really cool that you kind of take the initiative to say explicitly that you realize you do hold more privilege when working with certain types of clients. And I realize that it may even be uncomfortable for you identifying with identities that do hold more privilege, but I really appreciate that you still want to help those who might not share that same identity. Now we're going to get into the second part of our interview, which is about the specific work that you do. Could you please explain a little bit about your work and if you're comfortable, how you got into your field? I work at Mutual Ground and Mutual Ground is an agency that serves survivors and their families and friends of folks that have experienced domestic and sexual violence. And we provide the majority of our services at free, no cost to clients who need them. If somebody is a victim of domestic violence, for example, 
and they want to come in for services, they can call our hotline. And then we have counseling, we have parenting classes, we have a shelter on site that can house folks that have been through something unsafe. We have legal advocacy to help folks navigate the legal system, either for civil matters like orders of protection or for criminal matters if their abuser has been charged, for example, with domestic battery. And then we also have what we call hospital advocacy or victim advocacy, and and that's for folks, for example, who've been a victim of a domestic battery or of a sexual assault. They want to go to make a report with the police, we can go with them. Or if they present to um, like an emergency department in our area, we can go to the emergency department and sit with them while they interact with nursing and, and doctoral staff or while they interact with the police in those settings. Um, to help them understand what their rights are and and so forth. We have a 24-hour hotline that people can call at any, you know, sometimes folks are not ready to come into counseling or they're not sure if they want to move forward with any kind of legal action and they just have a lot of questions or they're just in a crisis and they need someone to talk to and so they can call Mutual Ground 24 hours a day and we always have somebody available to speak to them in English or Spanish, Um, but we can also find translators for other languages if needed. And then specifically in my department, I'm, I'm the manager of the family services department. So what we do is we do services essentially for anybody zero to 17 and their families. The majority of what we do is counseling. So we can provide them with individual group or family counseling to help them after they've been through either a sexual assault child sexual abuse, if they've been living in a home where domestic violence occurs, or if they're in a teen dating violence relationship themselves. We also have some folks on my team that we call child development specialists. And what they do is they do parenting classes. So you can imagine, maybe maybe you can, it's hard to imagine, if you were a parent and you had a small child who um, was a victim of sexual abuse, right? That would be really difficult as a parent to deal with, but also a lot of times parents respond by almost changing the way that they're parenting because they feel bad for the kid or they feel like they shouldn't be too strict because the kid has been through something difficult. And so we help them kind of figure out that relationship parent to child again and how to parent through that. But it's also helpful for um, parents who have, for example, been in a domestic violence relationship but are now separated from their abusive partner, for them to then start regaining that relationship with their kids and figuring out what they want their family life to look like now going forward from that relationship. So that that's another thing that we do. And uh, we also do one-on-one parent coaching for parents who need a little extra help, um, especially you know for those involved with like DCFS or who have had reports against them for child abuse. It's very common in families where domestic or sexual violence is occurring for the parents to have calls against them, even if they're the the parent is also a victim of abuse. And then specifically in my role, I also do a lot of training, like I mentioned earlier, in the community. So I have gone and spoken to groups of high school students. I have done trainings with school social workers and psychologists and counselors at the schools. I also speak at like organizations in the area that that also provide social service. We do trainings for like law enforcement. I'm about to do a training for some lawyers that are called guardian ad litems that make decisions about um, parenting time and custody. So that's a big part of my role also is explaining like how trauma impacts kids 
and why these issues are so important. Thank you so much for sharing about like what you do. It's really interesting and awesome to see that Mutual Ground and yourself are offering so many services to help survivors and their families. Our next question is about domestic violence itself. Could you explain more about it and like what types of domestic violence we might not think about sometimes? For example, like manipulation and coercion and stuff. Yeah, I think that's like a really good point. I think a lot of times when people are thinking about domestic violence, they think about physical violence specifically. And they think, well, if the person never hit you or put their hands on you, then it doesn't count as domestic violence. But we definitely don't see it that way. There's a variety of different ways that people can be abused. So you mentioned manipulation and coercion, which we um, we see as a part of the dynamic really overall of gaining power and control over someone. And power and control is kind of like the buzzwords that we use to to help somebody figure out whether or not they might be in a domestic violence relationship. So there's lots of ways to gain power and control over someone else. So one might be emotional abuse. So tearing someone down and kind of breaking apart their self-esteem to where they don't feel like they deserve to be treated better or they don't feel like they should be with somebody who treats them well, or they'll never be able to make it on their own because they've just been torn down emotionally, you know, either with insults or just little by little with comments, that kind of thing. Um, We also see a lot of financial abuse. So we see people who they feel stuck in a relationship because the other person has power over them financially. So they're controlling the bills. They are the only one working outside the home. So their money is sort of theirs. And so it makes it really hard for someone to get out of a situation because they don't have maybe the financial means to leave. Or they think if I leave, but the other person controls the money, they're going to end up getting custody of the kids or all of the parenting time. And so using kids is another way that people abuse others. I think some interesting things maybe for, for you guys to know is we also see teen dating violence as a form of domestic violence. And one of the things that we definitely see often in folks that are in a, in a dating violence relationship is um, the use of technology to control the other person. And so common theme would be, for example, somebody who's constantly contacting the other person. Maybe they even have, you. they're using an app so they can always tell the other person's location or they're texting them to ask like, who are you with? What are you doing? Why aren't you responding? And I've had clients, you know, tell me before they, they fell asleep early at 8.30 at night and when they woke up at three in the morning, they had like more than 300 or 400 messages from the other person, right? And so in some ways, in a teen relationship, contacting somebody virtually or on your phone is pretty normal. But then it's kind of about where does it cross the line to where now you feel like if you don't respond, they're going to be mad at you. Or if you don't respond, they're going to you know fly off the handle or they're going to threaten to break up with you or whatever um, it might be. And that's where that kind of manipulation and coercion comes in. And the other thing we see that's really common in teen relationships, but also really common in adult relationships, is the use of sexual abuse to control someone. So um, let's say you're, you're in a relationship with somebody and you send them nude photos, and now they're threatening to send them to your grandma and tell her, you know, that, you, that you're a hoe or whatever they're, whatever they're going to say. Um, or they're, you know, using those photos to kind of keep you in the relationship. 
are also they're pressuring you um, to have sexual relations with them, or you're maybe you're willing to do this, that, and the other, but you don't want to do this, that, and some other thing. And so they're trying to convince you and pressure you and constantly asking. And many times that's aligned with threats of like, if you don't do this thing with me, then I can just go over here to this other person and they'll do it with me. And so you feel like you have to do it, like you don't have a choice. And then of course, physical is also a big part of it. We know even in teen dating violence relationships that I think it's, I think it's a third of teen dating violence relationships also involved direct physical abuse of either hitting, hitting, slapping, punching, choking, something to that effect. So we do see that as well, but it's, usually farther along in the escalation. What the cycle of violence is, is basically three steps. I always say, if you, if you hung out with someone for the first time and they slapped you in the face, you probably wouldn't hang out with them again, right? But that's not really how the cycle of violence works. Things start off really good and really promising. And so there's always this remembering of the beginning of the relationship as really wonderful and blissful. And so then when something bad happens, there's this hope that sticks around and we call that hope the honeymoon phase. So they're promising, well, things are going to be like they used to be. I'm going to get help. I'll never do it again. And so you say, because you're, you're thinking, well, if it goes back to how it was, then that was really great back then. But then you go from this honeymoon phase into what we call the tension building phase. And that's that phase where you feel like you're walking on eggshells. You're bending over backwards to make sure the other person doesn't get upset. You're responding to 300 text messages every night because that's what you have to do or they're going to break up with you or that's what you have to do or they're going to hurt themselves, right? Because sometimes they're threatening also they'll hurt themselves or they'll uh, do self-harm or they'll have suicidal thoughts or whatever that might be that happens pretty commonly. And so you're, you're kind of doing all these crazy things. Like you're not spending time with your friends because that might upset them. You're sending them photos you don't really want to send. You're, you're going over to their house every single day because that's what they require of you. And so you're doing all these things to kind of keep things going. And then we call it the acute phase or the explosive event. All of a sudden there's some big, big thing. They, they pressure you into having sex or they start yelling and screaming and calling you names. They accuse you of cheating on them. And there's a big blow up in an argument. And then the next day you go back to the honeymoon phase, right? And it's like, I'm so sorry that happened. You know, I didn't mean it. I love you. Um, and then back again into the cycle of now you're trying to keep them, keep the peace and, and do all the things they're asking of you because you don't want to get upset again. And then another explosion happens and then around and around you go. And usually what they say is that the more times you go through that cycle, through the honeymoon and the tension and then the explosion, the explosions will get bigger and they'll get more frequent. And so that's why we see the escalation into physical violence usually happening a little ways down the road. Because at first it might just be threats, might just be yelling, it just, that sounds horrible. Those are horrible things to be happening as well. But I'm saying it's not always physical violence right in the first turn of the cycle, it's usually happening down the road. Thank you for sharing that with us because I learned so much just from you talking for those couple of minutes. Personally, I didn't know that teen dating violence was a form of domestic violence. And I think it'd be really cool to share what you just shared with us with the rest of our school. And a lot of times people don't always learn this in school or at home, so thank you. And I think too, it's important for teens mm -hmm. to know that, that maybe they're even at higher risk for being in a relationship that is like domestic violence or teen dating violence because 
so many teens are just trying out relationships for the first time. It's about one in three people will witness domestic violence in their home before the age of 18. So, so many people have kind of a skewed version of what a healthy relationship looks like. It might feel normal because it's how their parents always did it or how, you know, whatever adults they had in their home were doing it. And so when it starts happening to them, it feels like it's no big deal. Or they're getting this reinforcement message from their friends like, oh, he's just jealous because he really cares about you. Or she's messaging you all night long because that's what you do in a relationship. So it's easy for teens to get stuck in that because maybe they don't have a clear idea of what a healthy relationship should be. And maybe their friends don't necessarily know either if they don't have a lot of experience like in the dating world or with healthy relationships between their parents. Yeah, that's definitely very important points. Our next question kind of goes into the intersectionalities of how domestic violence might differ across different age groups or race slash ethnicities based on your experiences. We were wondering if you could talk a little bit about that or if there are no differences at all. Yeah, there's definitely differences, but I don't know if I can pinpoint and say like, this is one difference, this is another, because when you think about it, just speaking to race, for example, if you have a relationship where the abuser is white and has a privilege, right, then they're taking not only these abusive tactics, but they can also use their privilege against someone because they have all this power that's sort of given to them by society in addition to the power that they're gaining in the relationship. But it also looks really different if the abuser is, let's just say, is black. The abuser is black and the, and, and the victim is white. There's a different dynamic there. So there may not be that the abuser is now bringing privilege into the relationship, but there might be additional barriers to the victim wanting to leave or wanting to seek help. Because if I have a partner who's black, That might make it really hard for me, for example, to call the police if there's an unsafe physical incident. If I have a white abuser and I call the police, it's it's not as scary for me thinking about what might happen to them. And when somebody's in a dating violence relationship, they still love that person and care about that person. So they don't want something bad to happen to them, even though that person is abusing them. And so the dynamics can be really different in an interracial couple than it looks different for a couple who is the same race as one another. Many times where both parties are part of that same minoritized race, they, they may not want to seek help or get legal stuff involved because they feel like their relationship is a reflection on their race as a whole. In some ways, there's this pressure on minoritized communities to sort of keep it in the family and keep things quiet and not seek help. And so that creates um, additional barriers. And I would say that's, that's even more amplified, I think, in a lot of ways in, um, in homosexual relationships or relationships where one, one person may be transgender or gender nonconforming. Because again, those communities are really small and often tight-knit. In some ways, if I do seek help or choose to leave the relationship, am I also choosing to leave behind all of my, you know, friends in the LGBTQ community who supported me, right? Are they going to take the side of the abuser and now I don't have that support system that I really need, right? 
if I choose to leave this relationship, do I have outside supports that I can turn to? Is my family still supportive of me? Can I go home to my parents? And so that leaves a lot of additional barriers and factors to being able to leave a domestic violence relationship. It also creates a lot of barriers in terms of calling the police because many times in same-sex relationships or in relationships where somebody is another gender outside the binary, the police don't know how to tease out who's the abuser and who's the victim. And so that becomes extremely challenging. It often happens that both parties will get arrested because the police just, you know, they don't know who's who's doing what, so everybody's getting arrested. And so that creates a really challenging dynamic. It also it has that reflection on the community, but then also at mutual ground in our shelter, we can house anyone of, of any gender. But that hasn't always been true in every shelter that's out there. And so that is still in the minds of a lot of folks. Like, am I going to feel safe? Am I going to feel included? And that is a huge barrier for a lot of folks, too, to feel like those services, are they for them or are they not? You know, and at Mutual Ground, we're really trying to get the word out there that they are for anyone. But it's still a lot, a lot scarier, I think, especially for, for transgender folks to know if, if a shelter environment is going to be a safe place. We really wanted to just know more about violence can be different for people with different intersections and just different situations. So thank you. Some people say or think that people in an abusive relationship should just leave. Why might it be hard for victims of abuse to leave a relationship or walk out? We, we get that question all the time. Why didn't she just leave? Why didn't he just leave? Why did they just stay in that horrible relationship? And that's really um, what we call victim blaming. So this idea that it's their fault because they stayed and if they would have left, it wouldn't have happened to them rather than blaming the person who, who's doing the abuse. And so we really try to always, when we go out in the community, educate about barriers to leaving. And the truth of the matter is it's, it's not that simple. There are emotional barriers to leaving so there's this thing called hope, right, that we mentioned. And sometimes people don't leave because they, they're holding on to this hope that things could get better. I also mentioned this, this other emotional barrier called love. It's very true in domestic violence relationships that the victim loves the abuser, right? There's some love there. They have however much time they've had together. They have feelings. They have this love that they've shared, and that can hold somebody in a relationship. And then the third emotional barrier we, we say is fear. Sometimes the abuser is saying, if you ever leave, I'll kill you. If you ever leave, I'll kill myself. There's a lot of fear there about what might happen if they leave. And then when we have what we call tangible barriers, right, or, or however you want to refer to them. But like I said before, somebody might not have the finances to be able to leave. They don't have their own car or they don't have a driver's license. So they can't just pack their bags and head out. They don't have anywhere to go. So if they leave, then what? They're gonna spend a night on the street and end up going back. There's the issue of isolation, right? So like I mentioned, do they have support of their family or have they burned those bridges? Have their parents written them off or their other family members told them they can't come back? Many times, because it's a cycle, people have left and gone back and left and gone back and left and gone back. And the next time they leave, their family's like, I'm not dealing with it anymore. I think for teen dating violence relationships, people don't leave because maybe they lost their virginity to that person. Maybe 
um, there's a status symbol like, oh, they're the cutest couple and everybody sees them as they're always together. And sometimes they are unaware of exactly what's happening to them until it almost feels like they're too far down the road. And then they feel like they can't tell their parents that their boyfriend sexually assaulted them. They can't tell their parents that their boyfriend hit them or their, or their girlfriend or whoever. And so they don't have a, the support. So they just sort of stay in the relationship. I, I think it's insensitive when, when somebody asks that question and it really blames the victim for their choices instead of looking at all the reasons that it's really, really hard to leave or maybe it's not even an option to leave. And then I didn't even mention some of the cultural reasons. So for example, I mentioned before that I grew up in, in a pretty religious household. So I, I don't know if at that time in my life, if I would have seen divorce, for example, as an option. And the same thing is true for a lot of um, racial and ethnic groups. You know, there's stereotypes about like fatherless homes. And so there's pressure to stay together with your child's father, even if it's not a good or healthy relationship. For people who do ask, um, why didn't you just leave the relationship or why didn't you just walk out? I think you mentioned a lot of perspectives that they might not have considered. I was actually reading this book one time. It's called Born a Crime by Trevor Noah. And he was talking about how his stepdad had abused his mom and he didn't understand why his mom wouldn't just leave. And he mentions how his mom just states, he'll kill me which for me, I was kind of on the side of Trevor Noah wondering why it was hard for her to walk out of the relationship. But seeing how she said that, it was very insightful and it taught me a lot about, it's very complex though. Thank you mm -hmm. for sharing all of that. Our next question, what is something you would tell people who are suffering from domestic violence or have been through it in the past or have witnessed it? So one of the things I think it's really important for people to know is that they're not alone. I think I mentioned, I, I know more statistics about kids because that's the work that I do. But like I said, before the age of 18, one in three kids will be living in a home where domestic violence is occurring. So that's a huge statistic, which means that one in three of us have, have been living in a home where domestic violence is occurring before we become adults. So then once we're adults, you know, we become those people that are in the domestic violence relationships too. I think a lot of times people feel like, well, that was so stupid and how did I let that happen? And, um, you know, I should have known better. And the truth is that it sneaks up on you. Um, there are warning signs if you learn them, but it's not something that people are just naturally taught. You don't have to feel like you were, you were stupid or you were duped because it's just not like that, right? It, it comes on gradually and it happens to so many people and it is so prevalent that you don't have to feel like you're alone. But then secondly, I think it's so important to let somebody know that abuse is the fault of the abuser and the abuser only. People often feel like, well, if I would have just dot, 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 then it wouldn't have happened. If I could have just had dinner ready on time, it wouldn't have happened. If I could have just responded to him more quickly, then it wouldn't have happened. And it's just not the case. Abuse is the fault of the abuser. It's a choice that the abuser makes. I, I know it's hard to get to that place, but I think what victims need to hear is that they shouldn't blame themselves. And then I guess outside of that, 
I hate the phrase it would get it gets better because it's not a guarantee but I would say that I like the phrase there's hope and I think that's what's so important and so just because you're in an unhealthy relationship right now doesn't mean you always have to be and it doesn't mean your next relationship will be but it takes effort to make those changes you know I would say people should hold on to hope but also take the action and the steps to make sure that they don't find themselves in the situation again. Thank you. I think that is a good message that we want to share with this interview and by talking to you. What are some everyday actions we can take individually to make sure we don't perpetuate harmful actions or stereotypes towards victims of domestic violence and abuse? So I think one of the things that's important is Not that we just teach people how not to be a victim, but also that we are teaching people how not to be an abuser and calling people out when we see them doing abusive behaviors. I think that's really, really important in the age group that you guys are in right now as people are exploring relationships and getting into more serious relationships and that kind of thing. Many times folks think that that behavior is normal based on the way that they grew up or the other relationships that they have seen. And because of that, we want to make sure that we're showing the abuser and giving them a chance to change too. Um, And so we call that primary prevention when we help folks, you know, not be abusers. I think that the more you start thinking about like these dynamics of one person trying to gain power and control over the other, the more you'll start seeing it like in the movies and TV shows and the different things that we watch. Why is it always a moment in a movie where there's a girl who doesn't want to be kissed and the guy just grabs her and kisses her anyways, and then she's happy about it? And we see that in our society as normal. That's not normal. When we're just taking what we want without, without getting permission and we're just forcing the other person to do something, then, then, then we're starting this power and control dynamic little by little. We're pushing her into a relationship that she doesn't really want to be in, but we're kind of forcing it to happen. And so I think if you start just asking the questions and thinking like, does this seem like a healthy dynamic? as you just go through everyday life, watching TV, talking to friends, seeing their relationships, watching a movie, then, then keeping it in the front of your mind is really helpful. Yeah, I think it's really important that we think about both sides of the dynamic in a domestic violence situation or a sexual violence situation. I feel like we think a lot about supporting the victim, but we don't think a lot as much about telling the abuser that that's not okay and kind of addressing the root problem of the entire thing. So yeah, I think that's really important. Now we're gonna get into the last part of our interview, which is how your work impacts your views on gender. So our first question is, has your work in this field impacted your perspective on gender or gender equality slash gender roles? I mean, I think I spoke a lot about the journey that I've that I've sort of taken through my life to kind of get to the beliefs that I have now. Um, so I don't know that the, that the work that I do has necessarily changed it, but I think that people who work in domestic and sexual violence, they either already knew a lot about like gender issues before they got there, or they end up learning about 
a lot about it once once they choose this as the work they want to do um, because it is so important to our to the mission and the and the work that we do and and so forth so i don't i don't know that it's really changed my views but i'm sure it has for other folks that i work with but i will say that it definitely has become a bigger part of the work that i do than than when i was working in other so i'm i think i mentioned before that i'm a i'm an lcpc so i'm a counselor a licensed counselor and previously I worked in a therapeutic day school and then I worked in a psychiatric hospital before I came here to Mutual Ground. And the issues of domestic and sexual violence um, were very much so occurring in both of those places, but it wasn't necessarily the thing that we were focused on. Thank you for sharing that. I think it's interesting that your work hasn't impacted your thoughts as much, but then you also mentioned earlier that you're still growing, which is cool, I think. The last question that we have is among the people that you have worked with and helped, what are some common intersections that you see, for example, in gender expression or identity? I mean, I think that we very, very frequently um, see the intersection of race and ethnicity with victimization and then we we do talk a, a fair bit about how you know your status as a part of different minoritized communities come together um so i mentioned before that i i have several identities that that i'm you know uh, aware of and, and willing to talk about and so forth and everybody who comes in has several identities and there's very frequently an intersection between you know being a part of multiple minoritized groups then creates additional barriers or creates additional minoritization or how you have an intersection between one one identity that is minoritized with another identity that offers you privilege or if you come into the shelter and you're a black trans woman how are you perceived differently than let's say a white trans woman who comes into the shelter right and what kinds of ways that that interacts. We have clients who struggle with living with people of different races, but then also struggle with people of different genders. Like I said, if you're, if you're a black trans woman, then you're carrying the stereotypes, not only of black women and black people as a whole, but also you're carrying the stereotypes of what it means to be trans. And so then you're having to navigate this, this intersectionality where, although I think the staff at Mutual Ground do a really good job of, you know, being affirming, like I said, and, and being able to work with, with folks, but there's other people sharing your living space. And so then there's this difficulty of navigating um, those relationships. If you're sharing a bedroom with somebody who, you know, is misgendering you constantly, how, you know, then you have to work that out with your counselor and we have to intervene on the behalf of that person and make sure that the, the folks that are sharing a room with them are, are not going to be allowed to have abusive language or to do microaggressions against someone else. It, we see it in all different ways, right? And more barriers to leaving, which we talked about, but then also more barriers to getting to the next step, right? Are there as many jobs available to folks? Do they have access to, you know, renting the same homes and, and spaces? And will people, you know, see them as, you know, one identity or another or a combination of them and how does that either help them 
or hinder them as they try to get to their next steps. And so I think especially for case management, it, it definitely plays a big role. And we have to be really aware of the kinds of barriers that they may experience as they go through the various steps and the different systems they have to interact with. That actually concludes our interview. Those are all of the questions that we had. And we want to thank you so much for meeting with us and answering all of our questions. Ahana, do you have anything to add? Um, no, I feel the same way. Just thank you so much for talking with us and sharing so much about what you know. Yeah, we're just thankful that we got to talk to you. And yeah. That's all we have for you today, but we hope you enjoyed. If you did, make sure to tune in to our next episode and keep up with us on Instagram and YouTube at Bayas underscore Imsa. Until next time, spread the word.